Hi everyone, this is Kate coming to you from the editing room. I'm sorry to say that the audio of this episode was compromised due to some technical difficulties with the recording studio. I did my best to fix it, but the quality is still not our best and I'm sorry for that. We're working to potentially re-record this episode for a future release, but for now, the conversation and information is all there, so I hope you can forgive us and enjoy the episode anyway. Thanks for your understanding. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. On this episode, we are picking up with Catherine Aragon, kind of right where we left her at uh, at a port in England. We're going to be following her arrival to England and her reception by the Tudors, by the royal family, and then covering her until 1509, when she eventually marries Henry and finally becomes Queen of England. But these are the her earliest years of England. They're like chapter one of her time in England, and a lot happens to her. Um, these are really like her kind of formative years, and I think they really inform the rest of her experience as a queen of England? A lot happens. Um, So from her arriving in England in 1501 to her marrying Henry VIII in 1509, a lot happens. And it's not necessarily quick either. It's a lot of sitting around. It's a lot of waiting and being uncertain. But I think for the most part, having a very, very, very uncertain position. And so she's kind of in this strange land all by herself and and really having to navigate it for herself and find her way and learn how to advocate for herself, which is a lot to deal with at any age, let alone being 15. But what we see really quickly, I think, is just how savvy she was. And maybe she didn't realise it herself until she was having to do all of it. But uh, she knew what she was about and she handled everything actually really well. Because a lot happens to her, and like Kelly said, it doesn't happen quickly. She's in limbo a lot of the time, and yet she still is very dignified. She represents herself well, and she stands up for herself, which we don't necessarily see a lot with 16th century women, you know, advocating for oneself and one's best interests. She comes across sometimes as being very demure, and, you know, she tells people, like, I'll do whatever you want. But then actually in her actions, you're thinking, oh, OK, so maybe she was just saying that to, you know, further her best interests. Like she's already a very savvy player of the game, even as a teenager. But I think let's let's maybe start at the, the beginning, like you said, with her um, her coming to England. And I know we touched on this in the last um, episode um, because it it wasn't an easy crossing. It wasn't an easy trip at all for her, you know if anything really that was the easiest part of her time in England (laughs) well right because when she arrived in England I mean she went to the wrong port first of all um so everyone kind of had to scramble to meet her but then there was a bit of family drama upon her arrival and uh, I know you're a big fan of Henry VII but throughout this whole episode he's not going to come across very well he does come across as a bit paranoid 
I kind of have to confront him in his Scrooge McDuck ways, and I just... <laughs> I'm mad at him. We're not talking at the minute. <laughs> Catherine met her future husband and father-in-law on November 5th, 1501, about a week after she arrived in England. And the way the meeting was supposed to go, she was supposed to do the ceremonial arrival into London, and there was going to be this all this pageantry and this big welcoming ceremony. But Henry VII was really impatient to see her because basically he wanted to inspect the goods. Uh, like he felt like he had kind of sent away for this bride for his son, and now she was here. Of course, he should deserve to look at her and make sure she's acceptable, right? I mean, it makes sense. So, I mean, if you're if you're if you're if you're paying for something, then then sure. But right, like patience isn't one of his strong suits, and we can admit that straight out of the gate. He's I mean, not a patient man. No, and I mean, what would we do if she came into England and was ugly? Like we'd have to send her back, and then where would we be? <laughs> at least we'd have the dowry. <laughs> <laughs> so Henry and Arthur end up riding to meet Catherine on the road, but there's another roadblock because Catherine's parents said that they wanted the first look, if you will, to not be until Catherine arrived at the altar at the wedding. So like for her whole journey through England, she was actually wearing a veil to cover her face because it was seen as immodest for her to show herself as an unmarried woman on the road. Henry did not like this though, and he actually tried to convince all of his counselors and all the people around him to agree with him that he should be allowed to see Catherine. And it was actually eventually Catherine who relented. The uh, envoy from her parents was really adamant that, you know, she's a virginal woman. She should not see any her husband until they were actually married. And Catherine was like, you know what? It's okay. Let's make this easier for everybody. And she agreed to have this meeting. And Henry VII saw her first, thought she was great and beautiful and whatever he decided um, from, like, just looking at her. <laughs> and then and then she met Arthur and yeah the two were 15 years old at the time but Arthur seemed very happy with her he told his parents later that he had never felt so much joy in his life as when he beheld his bride for the first time I think that's kind of sweet in a weird way but also he's 15 so he's probably there's probably a lot of hallboats running around the place that are going into making that decision for him yeah, but you're 15 and you're playing this game of chivalry and you're you're faced with your bride for the first time. I think guess it's it's a romantic moment. I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent of it, but we don't hopefully don't marry our children off at 15. So yeah, I I can't really think of one if I'm honest, other but, than the show Married at First Sight. But that's a whole different. <laughs> no, but that's quite okay. That can be our modern equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> But then the other awkward thing beyond the fact that there was already kind of this diplomatic faux pas was that though Arthur and Catherine had been corresponding, they were sending letters back and forth in Latin, which was their shared language. They found out in person that they couldn't actually speak Latin to each other because they had learned different pronunciations. So even though they shared the language, they still had to have interpreters through their bishops. So like Catherine would speak, and then her bishop would translate her Latin through Arthur's bishop, and then Arthur's bishop would translate back to Arthur. And that's how they spoke. 
that is a lot of translating and there are a lot of messages that are potentially getting lost in translation there. Right. Although Catherine is probably being, you know, the very like demure, modest woman of not saying too much, um, you know, being very happy with her situation, even if she was tired and sore and scared. I suppose this bit is fairly typical, you know, for thinking of foreign matches being made. And, you know, despite the rocky start into England, this is probably starting to follow a more, um, yeah, a more kind of traditional pattern of what to expect once um, a foreign princess lands in another country. I think the funniest part, though, is um, Henry VII and his being irritated by how modest Catherine was trying to be. And this was part of a, a stipulation of her marriage contract, was there were certain things that her parents thought were best for her decorum, like wearing a veil and not seeing Arthur until the wedding day. And yet Henry just throws that out the window and he's like, nope, we're going to have a ceremonial procession into London. How can we have that if they can't see your face? So we're dropping that. And to Catherine's credit, she goes with it. Um, it could have been a really big fight, a much bigger fight than it was, but she goes along with it. So by the time they arrive into London, she's still being accompanied by a woman named Elvira Manuel, who is her duenna. It's kind of like a um, like a governess or somebody who attends a, an unmarried girl in public. So she still has that to kind of fall back on, but she's removed her veil so everyone can see her face. She crosses into London over London Bridge and she processes past the tower and down Strand and everyone is celebrating her and they say, you know, how lovely she is and she's clearly, you know, working the crowd. So it's a very far cry, I think, from what her parents initially expected of her arrival, but she nailed it. What you can see here is how parents are playing their hands. So Isabella and, and Ferdinand as you know we touched on last time and i think most people would know you know they're the they're the powerhouses when it comes to monarchical kind of power and just um status in 16th century europe a lot of the time what they say goes and i don't necessarily think that they are very used to um hearing the words no or people not doing what they want like you say catherine handles herself very well and is just thinking you know i've got to, I, i'm the one that has to be here let's just deal with it now and then we can talk about the rest later because is it really worth the fight even still Ferdinand and Isabella make sure that they show England and London just how powerful they are through their daughter's presence so her procession is actually really memorable because she had a giant retinue of servants with her coming from Spain and it's probably the first documented instance of black people of people of African descent or from Africa being in London. She had people who Thomas More described as Ethiopians with her, so definitely had black servants. And though we might see this as maybe a mark of the diversity of her kingdom, it's really a power move. It's Ferdinand and Isabella showing that they can afford these like exotic luxury servants. Um, it was it was something that was supposed to show their wealth and their power. And keep in mind, this is the kind of the dawn of imperialism, too. So they're showing, yes, how big their kingdom is and how much influence they can exert. I'm so happy you mentioned this. I think you know how happy this makes my heart, like when we're able to um, kind of rediscover kind of people of colour in history. Moore's language aside, which, you know, by today's standards is problematic, Thomas More is actually a really good source 
for Catherine's arrival into London. And it's not just the uh, members of her retinue that he's fascinated by, but it's also her. Uh, he's really delighted by her. He wrote that she received a tremendous ovation, so she's not, you know, the modest girl behind the veil anymore, and that she thrilled the hearts of everyone. There is nothing wanting in her that the most beautiful girl should have. Everyone is singing her praises. So he was really into her. By comparison, Edward Hall, the uh, chronicler who writes about the goings-on of the day, describes it as a triumph, but he also notes that they wore really strange fashions of Catherine and all of her ladies. So this was probably the debut of the farthingale into English fashion, which is basically like a hoop skirt. Uh, so not only were her servants exotic and, you know, she was lovely and something they hadn't seen before, she was wearing all these weird clothes. She arrives into London on the 12th of November, and then two days later, she's preparing for her wedding to Arthur. She and Arthur were married on the 14th of November at Old St. Paul's Cathedral. So on the site of the modern-day St. Paul's in London, but this was a much older and bigger cathedral that burned down during the Great Fire of London. But it's uh, one of the centers of the city of London, so it would have been a very memorable occasion. And in sort of a meet-cute that would change history, Catherine was escorted to the church by her 10-year-old future brother-in-law, Prince Henry, the Duke of York. That's not foreshadowing. I don't know what is. <laughs> I just think it's funny how you run into this moment a lot in fiction, in, um, you know, historical romances as, you know, this fateful meeting. And I'm like, she's, she's pretty much a woman. She's nearly 16 years old at this point and he's a 10 year old kid so i'm sure sparks were not flying <laughs> at least not for catherine anyway just have this little image of a little henry being like oh pretty added to that that henry the seventh spared no expense on making this wedding look as lavish and impressive as possible and at the center of it on the uh, bridal couple themselves so arthur and catherine wore matching uh outfits of white satin embroidered in gold so they must have looked really really splendid and noting that white wasn't the traditional bridal color until much later until the victorian period but white was still seen as like this very pure virginal color and then you add the gold thread embroidery they must have just looked very like bright and happy and you know this is a youthful couple they represent the future of the country so they needed to stand out in that way I think it goes back to an earlier conversation that we were having that Henry's not Henry the Seventh isn't stupid. He knows how much of a this is a horrible word, um, uh, how much of a prize Catherine is. So, like you say, you know, he's not going to spare any expense. He's going to be like kind of wave like shouting from the rooftops as much as he can. Like we've got Catherine. Like look what we've managed to accomplish and kind of what this means for the great Tudor dynasty, really. Following the wedding, Catherine became the Princess of Wales, so she was the second highest ranking woman at court, outranking the king's mother, Margaret Beaufort, which really must have pissed her off. <laughs> but she suddenly had all of this great power. She was being looked at constantly, but she seems to have really, you know, made it her own. Like we said, everybody who saw her in London was delighted by her, and everyone at court seems to have been in love with her that's i read no account that didn't say how beautiful and charming and graceful she was 
and at the festivities after the wedding, they were kind of showing how just strong and capable she was because while a lot of the men, including 10-year-old Henry, were getting like really drunk and like running around and making a spectacle of themselves, Catherine was dancing gracefully with her castanets um, and just having her own fun time and showing just how dignified she was. So everyone was really thinking like, you know, this is, this is it. This is definitely our future queen. After the wedding, Ooh. Oh, um, after the wedding, Catherine and Arthur were put to bed in like a formal bedding ceremony, which by 16th century standards of marriage was not complete until the consummation of a marriage. And as it was such a big event, especially in noble or royal weddings, it was kind of, quote, witnessed. Like, people didn't stay around for the actual act, but they put them to bed. They undressed them down into their shifts and then left them to do the thing. And so this, we know this happened to Arthur and Catherine. We have discussed this on Catherine's um, Divorce Court episode. But I want to talk about it from the perspective of Arthur, I guess, because... We have this impression handed down through the centuries of Arthur being like very naive and sickly and he might not know what to do or he might have just not been feeling up to it or whatever. By all accounts, that wasn't true. Uh, like Edward Hall, for instance, mentions that Arthur was just enamored by his bride and couldn't wait to be alone with her. But whether or not that's colorful history of, you know, showing that the heir to the throne is strong and busty. Yeah, I, it's always interesting kind of finding that, that fine balance with chroniclers. Because I think there's a quote somewhere, like, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's a quote somewhere um, of the morning after it with reports going back to Henry VII of saying Arthur performed something like right goodly or something, yeah. something to that effect. And, and he was making jokes about how he had been in Spain and he was, you know, asking for a, yeah. he was asking for a drink because he was just so worn out and everything, so... <laughs> he was at least playing the part of having yeah. done the duty. Even if something, you know, that marriage wasn't to have been consummated or something, because again, they, they're they still very young, you know, in terms of like their teenage years. And from, from Arthur's point of view, you're not going to be shouting from the rooftops, I this didn't happen, you know, we just, to be crass, had a cuddle and went to sleep or something like that. It's not going to happen. Like you, there, there needs to be an, an element of maintaining the quote-unquote macho sort of facade and, you know, you're going to be the next King of England, so who wants to think about the King of England who can't perform? We know Catherine's stance on the matter is that they never consummated the marriage. And like you were saying, you know, they were 15 years old, and though perceived as adults and old enough to be going through this, you know, marriage and consummation, they might not have thought it necessary. Like, they might have decided that, you know, we have the rest of our lives, let's do it later. Let's wait until we know each other better. I mean, remember, they can barely speak to each other. Um, like, the, the bishop isn't going to be in the room with them interpreting during all of this. <laughs> so, maybe they found a way maybe they did something but not everything like we won't go into it too much but um there's so many possibilities and the fact is that we will never know that's a lot of pressure to put on two people just to be like oh, off you go like i said we don't know if this was because of any maybe physical restriction on arthur's part what does become apparent in the weeks following the wedding though is that he is not 100 percent and a lot of people argue over whether Arthur 
was sickly, you know, by nature, like very prone to sickness, or maybe he was ill before the wedding and was still kind of recovering fully, or maybe he became sick after the wedding, but he was not, not 100% well. And there are a lot of jokes in the Chronicles about, like, maybe how he had overexerted himself in bed, and that's why he was so exhausted all the time. Or, um, you know, there were a lot of festivities before and after the wedding, like there was a tournament after the wedding, and though he didn't participate, he had to be on show all the time. So maybe it was just exhaustion. We don't know. But Henry VII nevertheless made a very stupid decision that in the middle of December, just after Catherine's 16th birthday, the very exhausted slash sickly Arthur and Catherine are going to travel to Wales. Arthur, as the Prince of Wales, is in charge, if you will, of holding court there, and it's seen as like kind of good practice for his future kingship. So they are going to travel there. And never mind that it's in the middle of winter, I'm sure they'll be fine. I'm sure everything will go well. Again, the, the man doesn't think things through. He's just, I think he's just so keen on getting everything kind of in place and properly in place and secured and settled because of the relationship that it is building with him and for him and England with Aragon and Castile, Spain, however you know you want to look at it, that he forgets that... And I think this is just a trope of potentially, you know, the 16th century, that he forgets he's dealing with people and that there are people involved in this. And just because you want something to happen and a ritual needs to take place, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to happen there and then. This is about the time that there starts to be a lot of drama with Catherine's dowry, too, uh, which becomes, like, the highlight of the next 10 years of Catherine's life is, where is the dowry? What is the dowry? Who is the dowry? Who is the dowry? <laughs> it's, it's everything is the dowry. And this was... 200,000 ducats that was supposed to arrive with Catherine. It turns out that only about half of it arrived with Catherine, and it wasn't in the form of cash. It was in the form of plate and jewels. And the idea was that Catherine would then, like, use these in her household. It would be part of setting her up as the Princess of Wales. But Henry was like, yeah, no, I want payment, though. So I'm going to go ahead and take all this stuff, and then here and then here begins a long saga of Henry fighting with not only Ferdinand and Isabel but all of their ambassadors as well. So I think sending Catherine and Arthur to Ludlow was also a way to show that she's here now, she's ours, we need the money. Yeah, definitely. Catherine and Arthur left London for Wales on the 21st of December 1501, so just before the Christmas celebrations begin. And they get there in January, just to show you how lengthy this journey is. Now add on that they're traveling in winter, and Arthur is already not completely well for whatever reason. It just, it's not, maybe not the best decision they made, but still, they get there and they have the closest thing that we can really call their married life. It's the, the short time that they spent together as husband and wife at Ludlow Castle. Arthur is, you know, seeing to his duties as the Prince of Wales. Catherine's probably seeing to her sort of domestic duties as the premier lady of the house. But by all accounts, they're not, like, close. They don't sleep in the same room, which is traditional, but also may be indicative of Arthur's declining health as well. 
and they still probably can't speak to each other that effectively um, without without translators. So it's not like you know they're settling in and becoming cozy and hunkering down for the winter. It's they're still two teenagers who don't know how to speak to each other, literally. It, it is a performative marriage at this point, I think it's fair to say. You know, like you said, they are doing the what is expected of them and probably no more, no less. And the last month of it is really centered around the illness that kills Arthur because it arrives sometime in late March, described as a malign vapor from the air. So whatever, whatever disease that is. A lot of people have said maybe the sweating sickness because it was going through the area at the time. But whatever virus it was, Catherine and Arthur both became ill. Like, Catherine became so ill that it was thought that she might also die. But she did recover, um, which shows just, you know, how healthy she was by comparison. Arthur, though, does succumb to the illness. So by the time Catherine kind of comes to and starts to recover from the illness, she's a widow. She's the Dowager Princess of Wales. But then, too, it's less than... A year after she arrived in England. I mean, it's less than a year after she left Spain. And now suddenly everything that she had been prepared for her whole life, everything that she had worked towards since she came to England in terms of like creating this persona is just gone. And she doesn't really know what's next. It's in other people's hands too. Um, it's for her parents and her in-laws to decide. She just is, she's entering the limbo phase of her life in England. Well, the first limbo phase of her life in England. Kate was just saying there was um, this was a time of kind of great change for Catherine of Aragon and just not knowing, which must have felt terrifying because I and I know we keep referring back to it, but I don't think it can be overstated enough. She was living alone in a foreign country, you know, language barriers being the least of her problems at this point. And like you say, she was in a very, very precarious position. So in answer to all of the questions and that seem to be lingering over everybody's head, because as I mentioned, Arthur had died, so we had Catherine of Aragon as the Dowager Princess of Wales. We had also, um, around the same sort of time, Elizabeth of York, um, Henry Seventh wife, who had also passed away. Yeah, you get the sense that Catherine and Elizabeth of York actually kind of bonded. Uh, Elizabeth of York took on a very maternal role towards Catherine, both as a daughter and then maybe as like the future queen as well like she thought it was her responsibility to raise Catherine up a little bit more and make sure that she was comfortable and that all goes away when Elizabeth dies in the beginning of 1503 so not only has Catherine lost this almost surrogate mother figure in a strange country she's lost her biggest ally like Elizabeth was somebody who had Henry's ear they were very close by all accounts and Elizabeth could advocate for Catherine. Catherine couldn't always necessarily advocate for herself being this kind of political pawn. And her parents are all the way in Spain. And the ambassador is on her side, but isn't necessarily entitled to, like, talk back to the king, necessarily. So Elizabeth was her strongest ally. And then that suddenly goes away. And thereafter, everything just kind of, it's so dysfunctional. 
it unravels in a almost Jeremy Kyle, Jerry Springer sort of way. So basically what happens is, as we mentioned, after following Elizabeth's death and Arthur's death, what Henry tries to do is tries to marry Catherine of Aragon himself because his way of thinking, and I'm not saying his decision is right or what he tried to do was right, but from his way of thinking, from a purely 16th century kingship perspective, it makes sense. Bear in mind, she is only 16 years old at this point, so his way of thinking about this is perfect childbearing age. Let's see if we can pump out some more Tudor children and kind of keep the family going for a bit longer. He also gets to keep the money and the status symbol in the form of being a daughter of Spain. Win-win. That being said, though, the ick factor in this is off the scale. Not just for us, because it is weird, but also for Isabella of Castile, so um, Catherine of Aragon's mum, who was reported to be absolutely horrified at this, and was just like, absolutely not over my dead body. This is not a thing that's going to happen. No. But and you she, do not mess with her. No, 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 no. But she's willing to entertain the marriage between Henry, Prince of Wales, later Henry VIII, and Catherine. It seems like a pretty intelligent alternative because you still you still get Catherine and you still get the alliance with Spain, one of the most, if not the most powerful country in Europe. But there is still the ick factor, as it were, um, because Catherine's just being transferred from one brother to the next. And though she gets to keep her position in court in England and Henry gets to keep the dowry and the status there is the, you know, the age difference between them. There is the problem of getting a papal dispensation because she's been married to Henry's brother. And there is the fact that they keep skirting around, which is, was Catherine pregnant, first of all? Like, maybe she and Arthur had laid together enough that she was potentially pregnant, so they had to kind of watch her to see if there was going to be anything. And then when they were sure that she wasn't pregnant, they had to figure out, is it icky? It, you know, did she actually consummate her marriage with Arthur? Because if she did, that would be a big no-no. But she says she didn't. And you know what? Let's let's believe her on this show. I suppose now we think of it as relatively straightforward, right? Um, just been, you know, you want to keep this alliance. You want this part of this relationship. Let's just marry the kids off again and let's just go again. But like you say, it was it was really messy and there was a need for a um, a papal dispensation to be able to say... Actually, I know this isn't the normal process, but like, let's get let let's get these kids married. Um, I think for me, this always prompts a really interesting question because we know how devout Catherine is in her faith, and as you say, you know, on this show, we say choose to believe her. You know, she's very devout. So why on earth is she going to make a false promise to the most holy office in Rome and say? we didn't consummate the marriage when actual fact we did because it's the easier choice to make for me than rather have to go through this whole process again. And actually the easiest thing for Catherine to do if we're talking about ease and convenience and logic is for her to just go back to Spain. I mean, that was what her parents wanted. They weren't really keen on having her stay in England. Henry VII was really lobbying to keep her around for reasons we've already mentioned. So this was kind of his idea of let's keep this alive. Let's just marry her off to Henry. We'll jump through all the hoops we have to. Let's just keep this alive. But all of this kind of starts to crumble the following year. In 1504, Isabella Castile dies. And suddenly Catherine's position on the global marriage market, as it were, 
goes down because Castile, her mother's half of Spain, is the more powerful one. And Isabel is seen as kind of the more formidable of the two and more capable of the two monarchs. So suddenly the alliance isn't quite as strong as it had been because Ferdinand now is in charge of all these negotiations. And he, um, he waffles a bit. So between 1504 and 1509, Catherine's in this, like, I want to call it an exile almost, because she is just basically sitting around waiting to hear any news. Henry Seventh can also be quite cruel when he wants to be. I don't, I don't think we can make any mistake about that. He's not someone that you, you meddle with lightly and attempt to get away without any consequences. So like you were saying, between 1504 and 1509, there's kind of this in-between stage that she enters and she's not really sure what's going on. So just by way of an example of this, initially, the after the marriage contract had been kind of drawn up and the treaty had been signed, she was given the uh, a house in London called the Durham House. But then, as we were talking about earlier, the, the problem of the dowry re- rears its ugly head again throughout this period. Only part of the dowry had been paid. And like you were saying earlier, Kate, you know, it hadn't been paid in the way that Henry VII had expected. Um, and this is a man that knows where every pound, every penny is going and what he has. What Catherine had to do effectively was kind of cough up part of the diary herself and be able to and had to sell some of those jewels and some of those plates that she came over with um, to try and make a payment on 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 the diary that she had in the meantime what had been what had happened in the treaty for 1503 just to make things more complicated was henry was not going to be burnt again he was not going to go without his money again because only part of it had been paid, Catherine wasn't entitled to the dower from her marriage to Arthur or the third of the land that was part of that, that dowry that she otherwise could have claimed. And rather than have more money sent over or things like that, Henry agreed to allocate her an allowance of £1,200 per annum. So what happened was Catherine was facing more and more and more of a state of poverty and was having to kind of throw herself at the mercy of um, the charity of Henry VII, which could be sporadic at best. And she's also having to deal with these people talking above her. You know, all these negotiations are happening and she's not even in the room. All these people are deciding what's going to happen to her, what her fate is going to be, how much money she's going to have to feed herself and her staff and her ladies. And she's not even there. So I think she kind of gets fed up and especially this is her father who's supposed to be representing her best interests but has so many other things to do i guess as a king he she's far pretty far down his list and like you were saying um catherine was having people talk above her and about her all of this time and in the end in 1507 rather than send her a brand new ambassador what henry uh, pardon me what ferdinand does was he gives Catherine formal credentials of her own to advocate for herself and be her own ambassador. Yeah, she's the first female ambassador in British history. I just love reading about this period of her life because I feel like this is the time when she finds herself uh, through all this hardship. It creates her in a way and it informs how she handles all of the other trials to come. I'm I'm sad her um, her badge that she uses to represent herself is a pomegranate and i think she should be more like a phoenix if i'm completely honest you know she does completely marred by tragedy and 
just constant barrage of nonsense that she has no control over and yet she just supports herself with such grace such dignity and rises above somehow and at the beginning of this episode we saw her coming to england as kind of this um a little bit more meek girl you know she's supposed to be hidden behind a veil and she's not supposed to give any of herself away she's supposed to be charming and graceful and beautiful and then she ends the decade by becoming the Spanish ambassador. It fascinates me. It all has kind of a happy ending, I suppose. Um, if we ignore how it eventually ends, I guess it does have a happy ending. So Henry VII dies in 1509. And up until this point, there was still a lot of drama about whether Catherine was even going to marry Prince Henry at all. They hadn't really spent a lot of time together, but Henry VIII, once he became the king, did make his intentions clear that he was going to marry Catherine. A very smart move in terms of creating this alliance, obviously, but it, I think there was some love involved as well. Like, I think going back to that moment when they first met when he was 10 years old, he probably, like everyone else, just you know, saw how beautiful and wonderful and charming she was. She's a princess of impeccable breeding. And Henry VII had won England by force and uh, a bit through fear, you know, in, in his putting down rebellions. So I think Henry VIII, when he came onto the scene, by comparison, was seen as like a very peaceful, like young, hopeful person. And then he has this beautiful princess by his side. It's like, it's the complete picture. It just, it looks so good that I don't think he could have necessarily stayed away from that little bit of PR, whether it was his idea or his counselors or his grandmother. It just, it's, it's how it should go. And somebody clearly realized that along the way. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. On the next episode, Callie and I will discuss Anne Boleyn's time abroad in France. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you, so please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Long live the queens.